Hello and welcome to Talking to the Top, a podcast made by students for students. My name is Freddie. And I'm Ed. And we will be your hosts. Throughout these episodes, we will give you an insight into the lives and minds of incredibly successful people in their respective fields, allowing you to learn more about the world that lies ahead of us all. And most importantly, how our brilliant guests got to where they are today. So sit back, relax and join us as we dive deep into the stories of these amazing individuals, uncovering the secrets to their success and exploring the many twists and turns of their careers. From the age of eight, our guest knew what he wanted to do as a career. However, this doesn't mean he took the most conventional route. From studying psychology at university, he's now gone on to be one of the most successful film editors of today. He's not only been nominated for both a BAFTA and an Oscar, but he's worked on hit films such as Top Gun Maverick, Mission Impossible, Kingsman and many more. Eddie Hamilton is a member of the American Cinema Editors and his enthusiasm is infectious, so we hope you enjoy the interview. So I'd just like to start by saying, um, again, Eddie, thank you for coming on because your career is so fascinating to me. You know, working on Top Gun Maverick and Mission Impossible, it's just amazing. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on, Ed. No problem. And in order to kind of fully explore what made you the person you are today, I wonder what the most important things I need to know about your earliest years to understand how you got to where you are now. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so... I think the biggest transformative moment came when I was eight years old and I remember seeing Star Wars on ITV in 1980 when I was uh, when I was eight and uh, it was on at 8 p.m. It was two and a half hours and it was on ITV. So there were commercial breaks and my bedtime was 9 p.m. So I was sent to bed halfway through the film. But my dad had a Betamax video recorder. And he recorded the whole movie for me. And then I was so excited about what was happening in the film. It was like nothing I'd ever seen back then. It was it was truly, truly groundbreaking. The next morning, I got up at 4 a.m. and I snuck down to the living room where we had a, you know, a small color TV. And I watched the rest of the movie with the volume turned really low so as not to wake my parents up. And uh, and it finished, I guess, you know, around 530 in the morning, maybe. When I saw people's names at the end, it occurred to me that maybe people make films as a job that you can actually do with your life. And I was so excited and so energized and so transported to the world, to that world, you know, pure escapism. I I just absolutely loved it. And, you know, from the age of eight, I became obsessed with films and obsessed with movie soundtracks. I would read any books about the making of films and I would watch as many films as I could. I didn't get taken to the cinema much as a kid. So I had to watch a lot of films on TV or beg my friend's parents to take me to the cinema. But a lot of those movies that I saw in the cinema when I was very young, I can still remember where I was sitting in the cinema and what cinema it was. And they they, they had a profound impact on me. So I continued loving movies through the 1980s and then... When I was at school, so when I was basically the same age as you are now, I remember there was a teacher who persuaded the school to buy two VHS machines that you could edit with, or super VHS it was. And and he would do things like make little videos around the school and record school plays and things. Probably the same stuff that you guys do in your 
you know, yeah. AV department. But it was truly groundbreaking because up until that point, I'd never been exposed to like the practicalities of filmmaking. I thought I'd be a writer or a director because everyone thinks they're going to be Steven Spielberg when they start <laughs> out. You know, when I started playing with editing, I found that hours would fly by in the creative process. And I just loved it. What I used to do is I used to edit montages of my favorite clips from other movies from my VHS tapes. And, and the combination of storytelling and technology really appealed to me. I'm quite a nerd. I was good with computers. <laughs> Editing is 100% about storytelling, but you also have to know quite a bit about computers and technology. That really worked for me. And I actually went to university to study psychology at University College London, which was a great degree, but they had a phenomenal student film and TV society. In my three years of university, I spent about eight hours every day making student films and TV. And I did, I basically did the bare minimum to get a 2-1, if I'm being honest. But I, I did get to make a lot of student films and TV. And then when I left UCL, which was, I think, in 94, I applied to various postgraduate film schools. There were no real undergraduate film courses back then, but there were postgraduate film courses. Like I, I applied to the National Film and TV School, the... Northern School of Film and Television in Leeds, I think, and then the Royal College of Art. and didn't get into any of them. I always used to get down to like the last five candidates and then there would be three spots, you know. Oh, so I always annoying. got quite close to the end, but I never got accepted. I will say that my tastes were very commercial. So if people asked me what my favourite film was, I would say things like Star Wars or Robocop or Die Hard or Back to the Future. I also love a movie called JFK that was made in 1991. So... A lot of film schools prefer you to be more alternative in your choices. But I, I hadn't really been exposed to much film history as a teenager. I'd just been lapping up British and American movies that were made in the 80s. Anyway, I didn't get in. So I found myself being very depressed. I got a job as a temp in London and I used to work in police stations and banks just it would be like a few weeks here or there, very mundane jobs, typing up witness statements in the police station <laughs> or making PowerPoint presentations for a bank. I got a job as a page layout designer in a magazine. I was never very happy doing that. And I said, the only way I'm truly going to be happy is if I really chase after this dream of film editing. And so I think it was like in 95, 96, maybe I applied for a job as a runner in a post-production facility in London, which is pretty much the way everyone starts out. And when you're a runner, you're effectively making tea and coffee and getting lunch and, you know, running errands for people. It's an entry level job. And really, when you're given an opportunity like that, they're really interested to know if you're if you're enthusiastic and if you'll turn up on time and work hard because they want to promote you quite quickly. But I was desperate to do well and I would work incredibly hard. I remember the first day I was there, they gave me the BBC technical manual on how broadcast television works. It was like 600 pages. It was in a massive ring binder. And they said, read this and this will teach you a lot. And it was a bit of a trial, I think. They gave it to every runner to see if they would do the work. But I went home and I read it in one evening. I just sat down and I studied no every page. And then I went back the next day and I said, right, I've read this. And it was a lot of technical stuff. But I was such a nerd. I was so curious to learn all this professional television lingo and technology and physics 
um, and electronics. So that was really, really interesting. And then I moved up. I was promoted to a kind of assistant editor position and then an editor very quickly, like assistant editor within three months and then an editor Gosh. within another three months. And back then, computer-based editing was becoming mainstream. And we used to edit on quite old Apple Mac computers with large hard drives. And that is kind of when I really got a taste of digital editing and non-linear editing, which is what we've been doing ever since, you know, and what every, what everyone listening to this will be doing on their phones and on their laptops and their iPads and stuff. So um, that's really how I got started. I think that was my way in and then slowly built my career from there. Wow. And you were talking about the VHS tapes earlier on. And would you mind kind of explaining for all of us who don't know how editing on VHS um and various other old older recording equipment actually worked. VHS tapes were an analog storage medium that had magnetic tape that ran from spool to spool. But what you would do is you would you would record on a video camera and put it in one side, and then the other tape would be on the other side, and you would record from one machine to another using a controller. Once you made an edit, you had to commit to it. So you would mark an in point and an out point there was a button to preview the edit so you could watch the machines kind of roll up and then you could watch the edit. And then once you were sure that you had it right, you would then record it and it would record onto the tape. But it meant that once you'd done something, you could never go back and change it. It was really very difficult. So you had to commit to what you were doing. And it was the way lots of stuff was done. And the way films were edited is they would actually have 35 millimeter celluloid film, reels and reels and reels of it. And you would put those through machines and, and literally use sticky tape you know, sellotape to stick the, the the bits of film together and then watch it through. It was quite a skilled job, a very physical job, a lot of standing up and walking around because you're lifting stuff off a shelf and loading it on a machine. It's not like now where when I'm editing, I'm sitting all day or, or standing, whatever, but you're just using a keyboard and a mouse and it's quite civilised in a way. It's kind of peaceful, mm -hmm. you know, there isn't much activity. But that's how basically a lot of tv was all tv was made pretty much until the year 2000 really i would say something like around about there and it was about 20 years from 1995 when i first touched a computer to 2015 ish when i got the offer to do mission impossible the first mission impossible rogue nation so i worked my way up the industry for 20 years before i got a job to work on a gigantic movie like that wow. which is about average and it's a lot harder obviously when you're British to work in the film industry than if you grow up in California, say, because there's Definitely. a lot that, that's the whole lifeblood of the of the economy in California. So it's a little bit harder. It might have happened a little quicker if I was working over there. But there we are. And kind of talking, going back to what you were speak, talking about earlier, um, when you were saying that you were eight and you saw Star Wars and that was kind yeah. of what started that fascination. I feel like a lot of young people set high aspirations for their future careers. But in terms of you personally, what do you think sets you apart from them as you're kind of actually able to achieve those aspirations? So for me, I think I was very fortunate in that I was very passionate about one thing from a young age. And it certainly was a dream because when you grow up in a tiny town in the south of England, you never think that one day you'll be working in Hollywood. You can't imagine how that would ever happen. But I was never one to follow received wisdom. I always wanted to tread my own path. I never kind of followed the crowd at school. I always questioned the way of doing things and wondering if there was a better way of doing something. And films just became a real passion for me. And I think it just a lot of enthusiasm 
a dedication mm. to work as as hard as possible. And honestly, if people are tr- if people are thinking about breaking into the film industry, it is last person standing because the commitment and the sacrifice and the long hours that you have to work to prove yourself and to gain enough experience and to get really, really good. It's like being an Olympic athlete or something. You really have to commit 100% to achieving what you want. That will mean working very long hours till late in the night, or it will mean missing birthday parties or only turning up to see your family on Christmas Day and Boxing Day and then going straight back to work again. And I did do that for years and years and years. But I loved what I did. And really the joy of having a job which you look forward to going into doing and you can get paid to do where no two days are the same because the film that you're working on is always evolving. And then getting to work with the best other creative people in the country, whether it be production designers or art directors or costume designers, hair and makeup, composers, cinematographers, directors, writers, actors. That is a very rewarding life to have. And I always pinch myself when I'm going into work and I I love it so much. It's It's a blessing to, no, it's a gift to have a clear goal in your mind from a young age. You know, um, you know, I have, you know, my one of my daughters is the same age as you and the other daughter is 14 and neither of them are really that dead set on anything in particular, which is fine. That's how a lot of people are. You know, they don't really find a calling in life until a bit later on. But I was 100 percent focused and driven on somehow making films because it's what I absolutely love. Yeah, that was it. It was just kind of endless optimism and enthusiasm and passion for this that was what it was really and just kind of reflecting on what you've just said and how it's kind of a gift to know from a young age in a way you could kind of argue that it's almost makes it harder because you have to you're so fascinated with what you want to do you have to be like okay what is going to allow me to get the best opportunity to actually get into this career and so was that kind of pressure for you to that you put on yourself for you to actually enter that career was that something that was quite difficult that's an excellent question I don't think I ever thought about it really because there is no kind of clear path to getting into the industry if you're a vet or a doctor or a lawyer or you know or an accountant you know that you can study law or study veterinary medicine and then there's there's a kind of clear path you know you study medicine for 7 years and then you become a junior doctor a senior doctor a consultant whereas with the film industry that you have to really make your own path and you can study film obviously but then you have to get out there and find a job in the film industry and people don't really advertise jobs the way it works is with word of mouth so you have to get out there and meet people and work for free so what i did is when i was first editing in this post-production company they did a lot of sports television they were a daily news show and it would be transmitted via satellite at midnight to south america i'm not quite sure why it was being done in london but it was And so I used to edit these half hour news shows between 4 p.m. and midnight and they would be in Portuguese and Spanish. And then we and then I would have to transmit them. So there was always a deadline. So the pressure to deliver the work was intense. But I always wanted to get into movies. And so I would constantly be looking out for people who would be making films. And I came across this young producer and director who were making a, a very low budget movie. And I I literally emailed them one day and I said, do you have an editor? And they said, no. And I said, right, I'm coming to Ealing Studios right now and I'm going to come and introduce myself to you. And they loved that enthusiasm. 
And I was what, let me think, 25, 26 when I did that. And so that was how I found my way in. And then that didn't pay very much money. It paid me maybe like 200 pounds a week or something. It was a tiny amount of money, but I loved doing it. And I could just about pay the bills with that money. And it was a sacrifice that you felt was kind of worth it because you wanted to. Yeah, totally. And they were really nice people. And it was my first experience of making a film. And it was at Ealing Film Studios. So we had like a little room where I set up a computer to edit. And it was super exciting. Back then, you could only have two channels of sound on your timeline. And now you can have, you know, 50 channels of sound if you want. But so back then, it was it was very um, kind of primitive, you know, the editing software. But you could do it. After that, I was desperate to kind of get any opportunity. And what I used to do is I used to work for two days a week at the Paramount Comedy Channel, which was a thing back in the 90s. And I would edit promos for them. So those little 30 second teasers for TV shows that go on before Mm -hmm. the main show. So I would edit that and I'd get paid quite well for doing that. Like I'd get paid £25 an hour, which even today is a good and that was like Mm. 30 years ago so I would earn enough money in two days to allow me to live the rest of the week and then I would spend the other five days a week for free editing short films and low budget movies and stuff and that's kind of how I survived for a few years getting my name out there and then slowly your network of contact starts to grow and when people are thinking about making a low budget movie they'll be like oh I know this guy who worked on this film and maybe he'd be interested and So that's how things got started there. So the pressure I put on myself was literally don't give up. That was all it was. It was just keep going. Just find a way to do what you love and don't give up. And and then eventually you'll get there because the other people will realize it's too much hard work and they'll go and do an easier job. You're talking about how time is important and how much time you had to give up um, in the beginning to initially kind of get the ball rolling with this career. But... And currently when you're working on a movie, how long um, does it actually take to edit it? Like how how long is this full process? For Top Gun, for example, Top Gun Maverick was about two years of work. So it was about a year of filming and then another year of post-production after that, another year of editing and visual effects and music and sound. A year is quite a long time to be rolling cameras on a movie, but Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which I've just finished and comes out on July the 10th, That was nearly three years. And so we were working full time on the movie. But we have been filming parts of the next installment. So there's going to be a part two next year. And we filmed about 40% of that. So it wasn't like in those three years, I was working exclusively on one film. Mm -hmm. But it does take to work at this level takes a very long time. Now, when you're making a very low budget movie, it might be one or two weeks of filming, sometimes maybe four weeks of filming, right? That's as much money as you have to spend. But when you're aiming at making a major motion picture, which hopefully people will watch for decades, because people are still watching the original Top Gun now, you know, and that was in 1986. There's probably, I don't know, like at least 10,000 people on the planet watching Top Gun right now, maybe more than that, you know, but maybe it'll be like 100,000 people with their, you know, watching it. But the standards, the, the level of excellence is set at the highest possible level every single day because the film studios want to create a classic piece of cinema which Mm. will exist in their library for decades and that people will want to watch again and again so that is why it takes so long and my job as editor sometimes starts before they even roll cameras i can be working on storyboards and what's called previs which is where complicated action sequences are created using a video game engine like unreal 
and you will film it with a virtual camera and then cut it together to give the director and the producer an idea of what the scene will feel like. If you go on YouTube, you can type in, you know, Marvel previs and there's plenty of, of examples of it there. That's amazing. And then when they start filming on day two, I get the footage from day one and I load it into my computer and I start work. So and you start kind of building the sequences immediately and you just chip away at it very slowly on top gun it was so complicated and so time consuming <laughs> we all used always used to say to ourselves how do you eat an elephant and it was one bite at a time and like a lot of things in life if you worry about the whole project it becomes quite overwhelming whereas if you focus on one tiny piece of it and just work on finishing that and then slowly chip away at something you know but before you know it you're halfway through like any kind of major achievement you know if you were wanting to become an olympic sprinter or wanting to become a champion mountaineer or something you would just take it a day at a time and with with the long term goal in mind but you just set yourself small challenges on a day to day basis so when we're talking about a movie like top gun um, how much footage do you have to work with? There's a lot. Okay. So for example, the very opening of Top Gun Maverick has a montage of F-18s and F-35s yeah. on an aircraft carrier and they're being loaded up with weapons and they're being refueled and they're blasting off. They're taking mm -hmm. off and you see yeah. all the guys kind of with their fingers and launching the jets and the catapults and people saluting and high-fiving and all that. So to build that, and that montage is is like a minute and 50 seconds. And I had about 24 hours of footage oh for that. Oh my gosh. Right. But it was filmed over a period of time. So the first chunk of footage I got was about 12 hours and it was filmed over three days. And so imagine going through 12 hours of footage and breaking it all down. So when I'm when I'm watching footage, you're watching just literally raw takes where the camera's like trying to pick out stuff. They're kind of waiting for a jet to blast off and it sits there for 20 seconds and then the jet moves and the camera pans with the jet. So my job is to go through it all very thoroughly. And what I personally do is I will break all the raw footage down into smaller chunks that are useful. Like here's cool shots of the deck crew and here's cool shots of catapults and here's shots of wheels and here's shots of the plane's wings and here's shots of planes blasting off and here's wide shot aerial shots of the carrier and here's shots of afterburners. And on the timeline, I'll build up a large roll, like a large load of little clips, which are just all the cool stuff. And then I'll put little markers on the ones that I think are really good. So I'll put like a little green marker on something that I think is good. And I'll put two green markers if I think it's really good and will definitely be in. But it must be and... quite satisfying to see it kind of at the end of that process. Oh, it, it's see. crazy, but it, it takes weeks to go through. So the mm -hmm. first, like it took me maybe probably about a week to go through that those 12 hours of footage and then build the first version of that scene. So initially they filmed on the USS Abraham Lincoln and then they went to the USS George Washington and filmed there. Like six months later, they did some more filming. And so then I had loads more cool stuff and I took another pass at the montage and put in much cooler shots of the jets. So it takes a very long time. And overall, for a two hour, 18 minute movie, we had 814 hours of footage. Oh, so it, it, just imagine that, having to go through all that to build. I remember when I was working on the final mission. So at the mm. end of Top Gun Maverick, Maverick and the three pilots, they blast off the aircraft carrier and they fly into enemy territory and they have that mm, final yes. mission. And then Maverick and Rooster are trapped behind enemy lines. You know, they get in an F-14. They have the final dogfight with the last couple of Su-57s. Yeah. So that whole end of the movie, which is probably about, probably about half an hour of the movie, 
took me about three months to do a first pass through and that was and that was literally the longest boringest version of that scenes everything was in there and then we spend months and months after that compressing it and getting it really exciting and you know and when you're when you're editing all you're doing is storytelling and holding the audience's hand on a seamless emotional journey because when people buy a movie ticket they're buying an emotional experience depending on the kind of movie they want to see. And some people say it's cynical that you're manipulating the audience, but I'm fully in favour of manipulating the audience because that's what they're buying a ticket for. They want to have an exciting experience or a horrifying experience or a romantic experience or a comedy experience. And on a film like Top Gun, it has to be super exciting and suspenseful and cool. And and you, you have to be connected with the characters. You have to be connected with Maverick and Rooster Payback and Fanboy, Phoenix and Bob. And you have to want them to succeed and you have to be scared when they're in danger. And you have to understand the mission as well. So what we were doing earlier on in that film is through the training sessions, we were teaching you the rules of engagement of how low they had to go and how fast they had to fly and that these surface to air missiles are going to blast up and they have to pull up and dive down and the miracle number one and miracle number two. So by the time we get to the mission, you know all that stuff and you can just be on the ride with them. And, and it feels as like editors, you're part of it as well. Yeah, yeah, as it, yeah, 100%. You're with them. You're feeling like subjectively with the characters. You know, when you're with Phoenix climbing up behind Maverick before they do the, the dip down and stuff, and she's being covered in snow, like Maverick's plane is kicking up snow onto her canopy and she can't really see. And so editing is about, it, it's an amazing privilege because if you think about it, on a big film like that, you may have something like 500 people working to make the magic between action and cut happen on the camera. So you'll have people designing the sets and people building the sets and people making the props, people doing hair and makeup, people designing costumes, you know, and there might be 40 people making, physically sewing costumes for the actors. Then you've got all the actors, then you've got all the crew, all the sound, the camera, the lighting, you know, all of those guys. And then they go action and then the actors do their thing in a beautifully lit set and then they go cut. That's the work of those 500 people on the day. All that combined effort of all those people comes down to one person who is the editor. So you are the first person to watch all this footage through and the first person to see the film come to life because you start building it. And there is no movie without editing. It's just boring shots of actors saying lines without any context. When you're filming, you're just gathering ingredients. And then when you're editing, you're actually cooking the meal. And then in the cinema, you're eating the meal. But the ingredients don't mean anything without a chef cooking the food. Mm. And that's kind of what the film editor does. And you're in total control of everything the audience sees and hears from the very beginning of the opening logos all the way through to the end of the roller. Every single creative decision of the movie, every tiny detail goes through your fingertips. No detail is too insignificant. You know, you really work on every frame of the movie to make sure that it's as good as it can be and to make sure that the audience understands the story and that it's effortless to watch. And when you watch a really great movie, it kind of feels like it always was like that. Of course, it was supposed to be like this because it makes sense and it works and it's funny and it's easy to watch and it's exciting and emotional. But actually, it's really, really hard to create that. And anyone who's listening to this, if they try and make a film, go out with your iPhone and make a little film, whatever, they'll discover that to actually make something that is effortless and engaging and emotional is the hardest thing to do and takes a lot of work. 
That's why it can take up to two or three years to make these films. Like anything creative, the first pass of anything is just rough, right? So if you're sketching out a piece of art, you start Mm -hmm. with the pencil and it's just rough and then you slowly paint it, you know, or if you paint a room, you you use a roller first and then you go around with a smaller and smaller paintbrush. It's like that with editing. Or if you write something, like if you write a novel or even write a short story, you never just write it once. You always go back and look at it and correct it and make changes. So it's like that with editing. You have so many options for every line of dialogue. You you know, you may have an actor may say a line of dialogue 70 times on set. So you've got a lot of ways to choose and you go through and you listen for the emotional inflection in what they're saying to make sure it's the best for the story. And that pressure Um, is on you to get that right. Well, it's on me working initially. And then once the the movie's finished production, then the, the director will come in and work with me. And sometimes we work very closely, like we literally sit in a room for eight hours a day and we go through every shot in the film and we try lots of ideas. And then eventually on those movies, Tom Cruise comes in because he's the producer of the film and he sits and works with us. But he comes in right at the end of the process when we've done quite a lot of work. But he is the producer and he takes his job very seriously and he has final cut on these films. So every creative decision that ends up on screen Tom has approved every note of the musical score, every visual effects shot, everything is approved by Tom. Ultimately, most of it, he's like, yeah, that's great. But sometimes he'll be like, I think we can still work on this and make it a bit better. And you've worked with him Um, on quite a few films. In your opinion, what do you think is the reason why he loves to work with you so much? That's a very good question. The simplest answer is that I'm as big a fan of movies as he is. I mean, I was enthusiastic and I'm I'm driven to deliver an excellent end result because I just want the audience to love the movies. They don't always work, right? So, and no one sets out to make a bad film. I promise you, everyone hopes their movie is going to be popular and successful and a hit. But the weird chemistry of filmmaking means that not all films turn out like that. And I think... You know, Tom loves enthusiasm. He's very enthusiastic. He loves the fact that I'm committed to excellence. He loves the fact that I'm fast and I I know what I'm doing technically. He loves the fact that I'm collaborative. So if he has an idea, I always try everything. I never say, well, that won't work. I always just try it because you never know. And if you're collaborating with people, it's very important to have a positive attitude. For improvisation, if you guys ever do any kind of improvisation classes, The one thing that you must always do is go, yes, and, you know, and always continue the idea, continue the creative discussion. Never stop the creative discussion going, well, that's a terrible idea. That's not going to work. Like you take an idea that someone's got and you go, yes, let's try that. Who knows what will happen? Let's try it Mm -hmm. and let's discover something else. And I think that positivity and that work ethic he shares. And so when you meet somebody in life, who shares those attributes and those goals for their own career. You want to collaborate with them again and again. So I've worked with Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise. Christopher McQuarrie is an incredible film director. He's an amazing film director. He's very collaborative. He understands, he has a kind of genetic understanding of what the audience needs in any particular emotional moment of the film to make sure that it really delivers for the audience. So I started working with them in 2014 on uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, and then I did Fallout. And mm-hmm. after Fallout, I did Top Gun Maverick, and then I did Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, and now we're starting on Part 2, which comes out next year. So I've done five movies with them now. Yeah. But each one is like a two-year commitment. So that's like 10 years of work, mm. you know. 
And I think when we kind of think about Hollywood and the film industry, a lot of people um, tend to glorify it and have an idealised version of what it looks like. So how do your kind of, how does the reality of working as a film editor differ to your initial expectations? That is a great, these are great questions. What people see as the glamour of Hollywood is things exploding on a film set, you know, Mm -hmm. or... Harry Potter and Ron Weasley, you know, Daniel Radcliffe and Rupert Glint, like pointing their wands and doing this, Mm -hmm. you know, and seeing that. And that's kind of exciting. Uh, And then you see them at the premiere. You never see the kind of year of work that went in between that. So people think that it's just going to premieres and having fun, which does happen every two years. Don't get me wrong. Like last week I was in Rome for the, the world premiere of Mission Impossible. So that was Monday. And then on Thursday, my family were in Leicester Square in London for the London premiere. Mm-hmm. And so my wife and my two daughters got to come to the premiere and like take selfies with all the actors and have fun and watch the movie and, you know, enjoy the glamour of that, which is one night or one or two evenings. If the film does incredibly well, like Top Gun Maverick, you may get nominated for some awards. So in March this year, my family got to come to the Oscars with me because I was nominated for an Oscar. We all flew to LA and we had an incredible time at the Oscars, which is an absurd dream for somebody who grew up in the south of England dreaming of working in Hollywood to find yourself actually there. When I had my photo take at the Academy Awards lunch, Steven Spielberg was stood right in front of me and I got to say hello to him. You know, just absurd, crazy adventures that you never think will ever happen. Yeah. But the reality is that you're there for two years I get up at half past five. I will do some exercise. Then I will empty the dishwasher, make my wife some tea. Then I leave the house around 20 past six. Uh, I drive to the studio. Sometimes they send a car to pick me up. I don't even have to drive, luckily. I'll work in my laptop in the back of the car, get to the studio at half past seven in the morning. Then I work for like 12, 13, 14 hours sometimes, depending on how long they're filming that day. And I'm working usually in a building or in a trailer near the set where they're filming. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm not, but a lot of the time on these movies I am. And then I go home and I get home at, say, 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. And that's two years of that. And then this year in post-production on the film, very bad work-life balance. But I've probably had five days off this year since Christmas you know, since the new year, like I've been working so many seven day weeks in order to get the film finished. The studio look after you. So they send a car to take you. So you're not having to worry about driving tired. And they will also pay for all your meals because they know that you're working insanely hard. So you get perks, but it is very draining and you're pouring a lot of yourself into it and you're sacrificing family time, quite frankly. So I do get to see my kids at the weekend, but sometimes I'll be working here at home And so I'll see them for breakfast and then I'll work for hours during the day and then I'll get back to them in the evening. So it's a lot of hard work, the reality of working in the film industry. It's very rewarding, don't get me wrong. And the people that you collaborate with are all wonderful and they're the best in their field. And you're like a family working on the film together, all trying to create this thing. There's a a great sense of camaraderie. It's like being with your friends all day, every day, creating something. So that's great. But I will say when when you've got like 24 hours of footage to work on a two minute montage for the start of Top Gun, it's a lot of sitting and watching. It's time consuming and not a great spectator sport, if I'm being honest. So it's important that I'm just left alone to do it. It's not always great fun. A lot of it is just carefully going through hours and hours of footage and trying to build a timeline. 
the fun bit comes when you've got something down and then you start to refine it and improve it. And that's the most rewarding part of the process, you know, and then seeing it with an audience at the end of the day. So how do you and your family all kind of sort of cope and prioritise your mental health and everything, especially yeah. with the recognition of it at the moment and its importance with such a hectic schedule and being so busy. Is there anything you actively do or take time out of your day to do in order to almost yeah. maintain your sanity? So, yeah, no, there are some things. So these are my top tips, okay? My top tips are there are five things never to forget, right? So always spoil your partner with these five things, right? Okay. On their birthday, at Christmas, on Valentine's Day, all right, on um, your wedding anniversary, never forget that, and also on Mother's Day if you have kids. So those are the five things where I I really try and make a big effort and spoil my my wife. And I've made the mistake in the past of forgetting all five of those at some point in my life and paying the price for it. So I don't do that anymore. And and usually it was because I was just working so incredibly hard and ran out of time. But I make an effort now. And the other thing that I do, which is a very small thing, but it's very significant on a daily basis, is I will get up early. I will do things like I'll make sure the dishwasher is all empty. I will fold all the washing that's in the dryer or that's hanging out. So it's all done. So she doesn't have to do that. I do this at 6 a.m. And then I'll make her a flask of tea. And I will write on a heart-shaped post-it note. Mm. I'll write, thank you for something that she did the day before, even if it's just thank you for doing the laundry and so every day she will get a flask of tea by the bed and she always wakes up after me because I leave very early in the morning. So she will wake up at 7 a.m. and I've already been out of the house by 40 minutes. And I do that every day. I've done it since December 2015 when I, I thought I've got to pull my finger out and make an effort here because this isn't working. And that's my top tip for husbands who want to make sure that their partner feels treasured and loved every day. It's so important. And it, and it takes five seconds and it has such an enormous impact. And if I say to Tom Cruise, my daughter is singing and I can't miss that. She, he's like, yeah, go. Of course, he has kids. He totally gets it. You know, it's not always like that. But if you have a really good team around you, they will always understand that you know being a parent is very important and supporting your child at these big events is very important and I love doing it you know so so Charlotte my wife loves it when I go with her to these things yeah and just in terms of going back to what you were speaking about earlier with your um eight-year-old self if he was sat in front of you right now what would you want to tell him um now you know what you know it's interesting isn't it it's like my eight-year-old self would have been be amazed to think that I'm working with Tom Cruise and that the movie that I've worked on, on literally on my laptop that I'm talking with you now, is going to be seen by thousands of people and on July 10th around the world in every country that the movie opens. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like it's like that butterfly paradox or whatever. Where do you want to change the past in order to affect the future? And if I said anything, would it change the trajectory? You know what I mean? Like, I think the main thing is I would say it's going to work out fine. Just keep the faith and keep working hard and, and you'll get there. You will succeed. And it's what I say to young people who I meet who are really enthusiastic about breaking into the film industry. When you're at school and you're thinking about what am I going to do with my life? A lot of the time it's, you know, be a doctor or be a vet. It's not go and build movie sets or, or write music for films or be a film editor or do something creative. Like creativity mm. is not encouraged necessarily. If you are great at, say, physics, 
you could go and work on a film set building cars like you could go and build a batmobile or you could work on building a set that you're going to explode for the film you know you're going to you you're going to learn about explosives or you're going to learn about making snow or rain or whatever and yeah so there are people whose job it is to just do that every day you know somebody's job will be to build the batmobile and so if you study art or if you study design and you study engineering and physics you could choose to go and do that with that knowledge. And if you're really good and you work hard, you can absolutely make a living doing that. You just have to want it enough. So it's it's very important, I think, that kids in school are exposed to that being a possibility because a lot of them don't even think that it's a thing that you can do. But it's never been, you know, never been easier to Google a job in the film industry and find out how people get started. But usually... You might start out with some work experience, but if you love, say, cameras and photography, you can go and work as a camera trainee and do the clapperboard and learn about lenses and learn about lighting. And, you know, if you're good at electronics, that's that's all part of that stuff. The main thing I think to say to my eight year old self is don't stop dreaming about being creative with your life. Some people love working in the city or working in insurance or joining the army or whatever. You know, it's a, there's a load of cool shit you can do. But if you want to do work in the film industry, it's it's very rewarding. When you start out, you won't get paid very much. But if you work very, very hard over like 10 or 20 years, you can end up working on some great big movie and actually being paid quite a lot. You have a lot of responsibility, but you can earn a good living out of it. And then you you know two days are the same and it's just you're watching movie magic happening every day. And it's just there's something kind of magical about that. It's hard work. Don't get me wrong. It, it you don't coast. You know, you like I said, you start early and you work late. But it's very rewarding work and you have a great team of people to have fun with while you're doing it, you know. Which is just amazing. And Looking forward now um, into your future, uh, do you have any big ambitions or things that you still want to do and achieve? Um, or are you very much Oh, that's such a good question. To be honest, I'm very happy. I'm working on some of the biggest movies Huge. being made in the world today with the highest possible technical standards and creative ideas behind them. And the very best crews and great resources from Paramount Pictures to make them. So I feel like I'm very happy where I am. I'm not interested really in directing a film. I don't think I'd be as good as the really good directors that I've that I've collaborated with. So I know my limits and I, I know I can be very good at this particular job. And it's always interesting to meet more people and work with different people. But I'm very, very happy doing what I do. And I'm 51 now. So I would like to think that I, maybe I've got another 20 years in me before I have to retire or because I'm retired by popular demand, which just means people don't offer you work anymore because you're over the hill. And, you know, but you never feel like you've made it. You're always making it. It's not like yeah. you reach the top of the mountain and you go, I'm there now. You always look and there's another peak. And, and I don't imagine that I'll retire either. I'll just keep going as long as I can, because it's a very, very rewarding and creative and fulfilling job. And yeah, I, I think honestly, I'm just very happy to keep doing what I'm doing, you know, and, and trying to educate myself constantly and try to get better at what I do, continue to watch other people's movies and learn different techniques of, of creativity. And that that's, that's it really.
Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Your fascination and enthusiasm is just so infectious. And I hope that the listeners can kind of hear that too and see just how much you kind of love your job. Because I think it is really inspiring to hear how you can kind of follow your heart, follow what you enjoy and um, do what you love. Basically. something great yeah. comes out of it which yeah is, yeah yeah amazing. just don't give up that's the main thing is like yeah. set a goal and don't give up and and you literally you know if you work hard enough you will achieve anything that you want to so yeah i agree and and think about having fun in the film industry being creative every day as an option in your life if you haven't considered mm-hmm. that anyone listening to this who is doing their a levels or is or thinking about what to do at university or whatever or listen to some interviews with people who work in the film industry in the department that you're interested in and go and chase after that because it is it's great fun and the other thing that's quite hard for people to understand as a as a final note is that really good enthusiastic employees are actually quite hard to find a lot of people who come meet me and talk to me think it's going to be just full of fun and glamour and and it's it is really hard work and when they realize that it's hard work they they kind of give up but when you meet somebody who is really enthusiastic and passionate and will really engage and put in the hours and smile and be part of the team they become very valuable very quickly and if you're one of those people you will succeed and you will rise up the ranks of the film industry because believe it or not you you are going to be a rare individual um who people will want to collaborate with so that's that's my kind of parting advice for you well thank you yeah thank you so much thank you so much for listening to this episode of talking to the top talking to the top is hosted and produced by myself edward brooke and co-hosted by freddie Feynman. it was edited by james crawford and the music was created by daniel marks If you enjoyed this episode of Talking to the Top, please leave us a rating and review letting us know what you think and follow us on Instagram at Talking to the Top.